Welcome to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast, hosted by Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. This is recorded in front of a live studio audience on Clubhouse. This point at Salesforce, um, and uh, before that, Scott was an entrepreneur, founded a few companies. Uh, before that, he was in the music business, so at the end, we'll, we'll come back to music. Um, and uh, let me first just welcome you and thank you for being here, Scott. Well, thanks, Dave. I appreciate the invite uh, from both you and Thomas, and you know, I would just... Uh, I would I would humbly just correct uh, or at least enhance one of those things you just said. We worked together at Salesforce. I worked for you, and uh, you know, thanks for being <laughs> thanks for being my fearless leader for that time. Learned a lot. Thanks, thanks, yeah, thanks. It, it is indeed true. And what a team we had, by the way. Uh, that was a uh, just a, for me. It was a very special time because we had some great people on that team. The uh, Service Cloud team, circa 2012. Um, so, Scott, uh, you have gone to, as a vendor, I can say this, you have gone to what we uh, sometimes call the dark side. <laughs> You've uh, <laughs> become a venture capitalist. Um, so it's going to make you a very interesting guest because you've seen life plenty of time now on both sides of the table. So uh, the first question I'd love, because I'm sure some folks uh, would be interested in that transition. I mean, how did you do that transition? Was that part of a master plan? Did it just happen? And kind of what was it like? I'd love to hear more. Yeah, Dave, you know, this was never part of a master plan. Um, my master plan evolved almost on a daily basis. I was uh, I was kind of a just-in-time career builder uh, all along the way. And, you know, the first 15 years or so of my career was uh, co-founding, building uh, three companies, uh, starting in the late 90s with a, with a search engine, uh, moving more into the uh, enterprise software world, um, you know, in the early 2000s, we used to call SaaS companies ASPs for, for those of you who have been around for the last couple of decades. They were application service providers back then. And then last one was uh, more of a traditional SaaS uh, company uh, in the e-commerce platform space. And, you know, through those years, I, you know, the things that happened to founders, I got beat up a lot. I gave over 300 uh, VC pitches, um, you know, found that some of those VCs were, uh, you know, some some were very helpful. I would say 2% of them were incredibly <laughs> helpful. A lot of them were, you know, uh, not as pleasant as I would have liked. And somewhere along the line, I said to myself, boy, you know, that guy sitting in the back of the room with his feet up uh, eating the taco while I'm giving my presentation, I, I think I could probably do better than that. Although, it, you know, earlier in my career, I just felt like I hadn't earned the right. And, uh, in other words, I, I hadn't learned enough to truly be helpful because the, the few investors that I worked with uh, through the years who really, really did special things for me and the company uh, in terms of, you know, advising on, you know, product paths to take, markets and how we should evaluate markets, um, you know, insights into uh, different private companies that I hadn't that I didn't have access to that we really needed to understand. Um, those were those were the sort of the the gems that, that uh, um, certain uh, venture capitalists at that time who had had two or three decades of experience as an operator or, you know, as, as a successful investor, they carried with them. And they were able to share those learnings with me. And, and those were the things that when I look back and I say, of all the things that didn't work, what, when I focus just on the successes, the things that worked really well, I can usually point to uh, some advisor or some partner. In some cases, it was a it was a venture investor who helped guide us in the right way. And I said to myself, you know, at some point, I would love to be one of those two percent. Hopefully, one of those two percent that's actually proactive, helpful, lean in, somebody that 
every founder would would want on their board and would want to call and have a, a very frank and you know personal conversation about challenges that they're going through. And so, you know, in my early 40s, uh, the opportunity uh, to join what I viewed as, you know, one of the best culture fit uh, firms uh, in the industry, Norwest Venture Partners, that opportunity um, availed itself. And uh, one thing led to another. And here I, I, I've been there uh, now for four years and uh, haven't looked back. Awesome. So um, as you guys may expect, we, we prepare these sessions, but once in a while I throw a curveball that wasn't in the, the notes that I sent Scott. So I'm going to throw you one now. Um, and, and it's going to be a tricky question. So, but, but I've given that you've done 300 VC pitches, I feel compelled to ask, you know, I work with a lot of founders and sometimes they can almost take VC like seed or a round messages from VCs almost too seriously. Like they love us. And they said to come back when we have 1 million in ARR. Or, you know, they were really pleasant and they were really easy to get the meeting with. And, and then they'll, they'll kind of give a reason why they're not interested in the investment. And, and my personal thing when I talk with these founders, uh, and my question is to be, what, what would you say in this situation? I would say don't put too much stock in that because from a game theory perspective, the VC's incentive is to keep options open. You know, they may not be able to invest at this time for any reason. You cannot assume that they're going to tell you with 100% transparency why and their incentive is to say, Scott, I love you, man. You're awesome. Great team. Love the idea, but we can't lean in at this time. You know, come back when you've got a million in ARR. Or come back when you've got something. And, and I've heard some founders literally like put that on the wall and make that their their credo. And then they come back having done that. And they, there's another reason why. Um, so so I always tell founders that you got to be careful interpreting that advice because the VC's incentive is to make you like them and keep options open in case you hockey stick. They want to go, hey, man, I love you. <laughs> so so how would you deal with this? Have you seen this? Certainly after 300 pitches, I'm sure you got plenty of no's. Um, how do you interpret what a VC says to you as a founder um, in that circumstance? It's a great question, Dave. And and yes, out of those 300 or, or more pitches, most of them were no's. And uh, sadly, I, I would say maybe 50% of them, I didn't get any feedback at all. And so when I would get feedback and it was sort of the boilerplate, uh, you know, you're just not a good fit, right? That's, that's the most common feedback is you're, you're just not a good fit for our firm or it's not a good fit for us at this stage. It, that doesn't really, that's not very helpful. And some, though, would come back and say, well, the problem is you're too small. And I, naturally, I would say, well, what's too small? Can, you, can we quantify this? And like you said, maybe, it, maybe it's ARR. Maybe it's um, you know, number of customers, uh, pen, you know, market penetration. Uh, maybe uh, you're churning out too many of your customers. And boy, as soon as you can get that net retention up over 100%, let's, let's talk. And so you're right. We would, we would etch that into the granite on our um, – on our on our office wall and go back to them and and sure enough uh, things do change so you know I think it, it, you're you're touching on something that for me is is obviously very personal because I got beat up a lot and um, I had to deal with this very thing one of the things I'm really trying hard to do and I know I'm not perfect on this but one of the things I try to do is when I when I say no to a particular round or a particular you know uh, founder or entrepreneur. I try to be as as complete as I can. And so I would hope that if you interviewed all of the founders that I've given a no to, they would say to you, which sometimes they say to me, which is, wow, 
you really wrote a very thoughtful and very detailed explanation. Um, they don't always know exactly if, if or how I would turn to a yes, because in some cases, I don't know, <laughs> quite frankly. Sometimes it's just not, you know, it's not a, it turns out that what they pitched wasn't exactly what I thought they were doing. And so it's not, it's not an industry or a product or a market that I'm particularly interested in. But I, I try to be as, as, as clear uh, and deliberate as possible. But, of course, you know, there's always going to be situations where, you know, founders, the, the natural, my natural instinct as an entrepreneur was to always stay positive. And to always think there is always a way forward. Whenever I hear a no, that's, a, you know, just in sales, right? First no, that's your first opportunity to start selling. And so that doesn't always work in the, in the world of, of capital raising. But anyway, I, I think, uh, you know, the best thing to do is to ask. As a founder, ask, what did you mean by that? Can we, can we jump on a call? Can, we, can you send me an email with some more detail? I would really like to understand. And guess what? Sometimes you're going to get the vibe that this just isn't a good fit for a very specific reason. You know, they just don't like what you're doing. And that's OK. You know, not 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 every not, not everyone's as beautiful as they they'd like to be to everyone else. And that's that's just life. Awesome. OK, thanks for that one. So um, just quickly, for those who've just recently joined us, uh, we're talking to Scott Beechuk, a partner at Norwest Venture Partners, former Salesforce exec and former entrepreneur. Um, uh, Scott Beechick, and uh, I'm going to interview him for a while, but if people have questions at any point, just raise your hand. We'll be happy to take questions from the audience. Um, let's go now, Scott, to our first uh, pre-planned, pre-planned question, uh, which was, uh, what do VCs look for in product teams? Yeah, it's a great question because um, I think product is one of the main pillars, especially early on, that we look at. I mean, it depends what stage. And so if we're talking about, you know, a, you haven't even, you know, filed your, your, your corporate docs yet. You're not, you're not even, you know, up and running, but you have a business plan. Well, you know, the most important thing obviously are the people and, you know, do, do we have a relationship? Do, is there trust built there? Do you have expertise in this area that you're thinking about building? I think let's, but, but your question is kind of getting more at once you start to build out a product team, you know, what does a, what does a, uh, an investor look for? And that's, you know, there I, I find to be two very specific, uh, uh, you know, leadership roles that are the hardest to hire for. And one of those leadership roles happens to be the CMO, which uh, near and dear to your heart, Dave, I know, because a CMO uh, has, ten, you know, those 10 or more different uh, roles within that one leadership role. And you're, nobody's a 10 out of 10 in all those categories. And so, you know, you got to you got to find the right CMO or the right product uh, marketing leader who fits. It's almost like a key. The key it fits the right keyhole. And I, I see and, and I see uh, uh, Morgan uh, Norman here in the room and one of the one of the better CMOs that that I've ever known. Um, so I'm sure he would uh, sure he would relate on the product side. I would say maybe we have five different roles. And so what we're really looking for, I think, is does this product leader or this product team have what it takes to build a product in this market? And that's very vague, I know. But let's just say, for example, I'll use a specific example. So let's just say we're building uh, something in e-commerce, okay? We're building an e-commerce technology of some sort. It could be an e-commerce platform or maybe it's an 
e-commerce you know, marketing uh, capability or a product catalog or who knows what it is. The, what I really look for is, A, does anyone on the team, and it doesn't have to be everyone, but does anyone on the team have a background in e-commerce technology? Because having domain expertise is, is just incredibly valuable, especially in the early days when we're all looking, we're, we're, the company's moving real fast, everyone's throwing ideas over the cubicle wall, uh, virtual cubicle wall in the last year or so, and, and just asking, you know, what, what, what should we do here? What do customers really think about this? Well, the answer is actually buried deep within the neurons in your brain that you've been, <laughs> that you've been exercising over the last 10 or 20 years because you've been in this industry. Um, but it's not, it's not absolutely necessary. I have another bias, and I'll, I'll admit it. My bias is that product managers, especially in startups, should have some level of technical knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that they all have to have you know, master's uh, degrees in computer science or electrical engineering or mechanical, whatever it is that you're building. It just means that product people, product managers, should be able to communicate with engineering teams in the language of engineering. We should be able to talk, if it's a software product, we should be able to talk about how a database and a relational database is structured. What is a foreign key and what, what are the performance implications of you know, running uh, a query against you know, multiple tables with different indexes? If you don't understand basic things like that, you're going to have a hard time creating a PRD or, or a spec of any kind because engineering is just going to kick it right back to you and say, hey, bud, uh, there's no way that's going to perform in the real world. And you need to be able to have that real-time, fast conversation at, at some level of, of, of technical uh, knowledge. Now, I think, Dave, that as companies mature and they get bigger and bigger, not everyone has to have that level of technical expertise. In fact, I would argue that product managers and product marketing people will start to share some of the same uh, DNA. They, they should both be able to you know, speak to the customer and speak to the market and keep an eye on the competition. And, con and you know, as, as the company and the customer install base gets much, much bigger, I think it becomes more important at that point to truly understand what do, what do your customers want what do they need? What is the where, where which what direction is the market moving? And so I think the answer to your question, the TLDR, which I just gave you the expanded version, is it changes over time. Um, but in the early days, I think a great product team has domain expertise and some level of technical technical knowledge. Thanks, Scott. Um, a, a little bit of color on on your answer for me on, on this one. So I, I would say a couple things on, on domain. <clears throat> agree, and, and just to make a distinction, and I don't know if you'll agree or not with this, we'll find out, but but I would say in platform companies, it's pretty common that the PMs kind of by default have technical knowledge because you kind of have to, and in apps companies, it gets a little harder because I have worked at apps companies where the PMs really aren't technical. They're domain experts in the app, but they're not technical. Um, so, so I'm going to agree with you that, that I think the technical background is very useful. I think there's a misnomer out there about why. Because some people, and this was a long time ago, I don't know if people still hold this view, but it was like, we need our PMs to be technical so they can kind of call engineering's bluff. Um, and I think that's wrong, both from a collaboration perspective and even if you're technical, you're not going to be that technical. That's not why I want you to be technical. I want you to be technical 
primarily in my words, to have really good conversations with engineering about how we can clarify or sharpen the requirements to make it more implementable, right? Because it might take 10 units of work to get it done as stated in the PRD. But if we sit down and have a conversation and you force me by understanding the constraints to, to make some changes to the requirements, I might be able to get a lot more faster. And, and that to me is really an optimization thing, not a, in my opinion, not a healthy tension thing. Don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think there's two different interactions that happen. One is healthy and one's not so healthy. I think the not so healthy one is where you've got a culture where product and engineering and perhaps a third group, UX, are all at odds with one another and they don't trust one another. And that's, that, is a, that is a very caustic, very dangerous situation to be in because what you end up with now is every time you want to create a set of new capabilities in your product or your product line, now product is naturally going to push as hard as they can to get as many features in there. Engineering is going to naturally sandbag because that, that's, that's how they protect themselves <laughs> against this onslaught of feature requests. And there's go now all of a sudden you've created this adversarial relationship because product will never get really what they ask for. Engineering knows that if they're held to that standard, meaning, you know, I, I've got, look, it, across my scrum teams, I've got 100 story points for this release and you're asking me for 350. It's just not going to happen. But product will sometimes get more aggressive because there becomes this adversarial like, uh, engineering is always saying we can't do it. So, you know what, let's just push really hard and just force them to do things. And then, you know, in, in an extreme example, one of those two sides wins. And that's when things get really gnarly. Because now all of a sudden, if let's just say product wins. Well, now engineering will be forced to do things that are not healthy. They'll be forced to hard code when they should have architected for uh, extensibility. Um, they're going to be forced to cut corners on quality engineering, uh, quality assurance, which is obviously never good. They're going to be forced to cut corners possibly on the CICD pipeline, and something's going to break when you release it into, into production. So I, I think I, I'm with you. I think there there is this other side, though, where you've got um, a very productive uh, version of this. And the productive version is... If product teams can communicate with engineering teams and there is this sort of copacetic, uh, you know, uh, mutual trust and respect between the two, now what we can do is we can get into a room between product and engineering and we can, we can have a healthy and friendly debate about, hey, I think we need to build this uh, new capability that, that, that integrates with these seven different systems Engineering will come back and say, well, the problem is that three of those systems don't have REST APIs, and what we're going to have to do is do some crazy data dips, and it's going to be really nasty. We're probably going to have to you know, build a new data store, and, well, that's going to bloat the, you know, it, it just goes on and on. But as long as product has enough uh, technical um, background to at least appreciate the realities of what engineering is communicating, I think now that's when you can reach what is the, you know, we're always compromising. There's never a perfect scenario. We never have enough resources. We never have enough smart people in the room to, to solve every problem perfectly every time, right? So every single uh, release involves a whole set of compromises. So in that, you know, idealistic scenario, 
everyone understands the limitations and uh, both sides will have to back off and make some compromises. Awesome. Um, next question, and this was not in the prepared material, another curveball for you, Scott. You know, often people might joke that the, the hardest job at Salesforce is CMO, right? Because Benioff is the marketing genius. Um, I think the same sort of thing is being the first VP of product at a, at a company founded by a product leader is a very hard job, uh, in my opinion. And so the question I have for you is, what do you, when do you think they should do that? How long should the founder be the de facto VP of product? Is it something you do earlier, something you do later? Have, have you seen it work? Because it, it, it's a hard job. It is. And I think, my, so this is, again, my, my personal view is that what, even though a lot of great founders have product or engineering backgrounds, I think the, the, the job of the founding CEO is actually something different. I think the job of the founding CEO is actually to be focused more on go-to-market because in the early days, you're the, the, one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a very, very early stage company is hiring a CRO to handle all the things that they just naturally don't know because they're not the ones who founded the company. They're not the ones who spent the, the year and a half prior studying the market, building the business plan, you know, getting to know the customers. It's, it's probably the founding CEO or one of the co-founders, but combined together, they should know the market. They should know the product. They should know the use cases, they should know uh, where things are going, have the vision for where the market's going more than anybody that they might hire off the street. And so I actually think that the founding CEO should, at least for the first, I don't know, maybe a year, who knows how long, uh, be the, the, the head of sales. And <laughs> I, I, I had no sales background when I founded my first company, but naturally I had to fill that role because I, we tried to, and I made this mistake, by the way, this is one of, one of the many mistakes that I made, but I hired a salesperson and sure enough, he sat there in the office and he couldn't figure out what the heck to do because he didn't have the, the last two years worth of context that we built up. And so the answer to your question, getting back to it, Dave, is there are a lot of great product, product leaders, founders of companies, but I, the advice that I try to give them is, Move away from product as fast as you can because it's a rabbit hole. In the early, you know, first two years of building the company, it's yes, you can just lean in on product, and the next thing you know, you'll be up till three in the morning, three o'clock in the morning every day, you know, creating uh, user stories. And but the rest of the business, actually, we, we actually need to understand who the heck are we going to sell this to. We need design partners before we even have a product. So you should be out there finding those design partners. And so it's not always easy. I think product people, me included, uh, we're a little hard-headed sometimes. Uh, we always think we know best, <laughs> but what, but what, what product to build, how to build it, uh, you know, what, what the MVP should look like, all that good stuff. Um, but I think if you do, as a as a founding CEO, hire uh, a leader of product, you need to be very clear about how things are going to change going forward, because that is a very real conflict, and we've all seen it. We've all seen that we need, and, and, and that is, I, sometimes um, I think that the, the advice I always give is, if you're going to hire that product leader, um, make sure that you're ready to take on a new role, because you can't have two cooks in a very small kitchen. That's so, the way I look at it. 
I, I love, I work with a lot of founders, as you know, and, and one of the fun parts is watching product-oriented founders who, who are newer in their careers figure out that software companies are effectively distribution businesses <laughs> that happen to have R&D attached, right? Um, and I always sure. tell them to go look at the P&L of a mature software company, and you'll see that they spend typically three times on sales and marketing what they spend on R&D, right? So, so if there's, if there's any question about where like, at least the money goes in the software company, go look at a P&L, and you're going to see the money get spent on sales and marketing. And I totally agree with you. I loved your answer, so I'm just going to pile on the back of it which is hire a VP of product early so you can do your job and your job is to go figure out, go to market. I'm going to add an idea that I, I once sat down and had a good talk with uh, MoveWorks CEO and founder, Bobin Shaw, and he told me what I've heard, what I still think is the best answer I've heard. I wanted to hire your salesperson. Um, and he hired his first VP of sales very early. And in order to get the context you talked about, Scott, he, they basically glued themselves to each other for like a year and a half. <laughs> and said, I'm going to hire you well before I need you. I'm going to glue you to me for 18 months. And then when I let you go, you're going to be able to sell this because you will have all that context and we will be 100% interlocked. And because you are an experienced sales manager already, uh, I know that when I let you go, you, you know how to build a sales team. So I, I, I was like, man, that's smart. Um, David, then, uh, yep. can I jump in a second here? Please. The, uh, there's a thing about sales, though. It's the ability to close, um, and and that is that is hard to that is hard to learn. So, you know, I, I see often often founders they're great at pitching the story, but they they're not they're not great closers. And you know, building that that this is what a great sales great salespeople are good at closing, right? They're not great at vision. Right, they're not great at marketing. They're not great at, at at building all that other stuff. And the best salespeople I found are actually quite selfish, because they focus on at that moment in time the most important thing in the world is closing that deal, right? And so, um, <clears throat> you know, if you're a founder and you're trying to do multiple things, you've got to learn the thing you've got to learn the, the quickest and the fastest is how to close, uh, because if you can't close business, you don't have a business, right? And the same thing comes though. The, the corollary is when you hire a salesperson in, you can't expect the salesperson to come up with their own deck. You can't expect the salesperson to to uh, be able to articulate your your product vision in the same way that you do. You have to be able to standardize and simplify your product vision so that the so that the salesperson can go and can go and actually do the go, go and actually do the selling. So that that implies that. Before you start hiring salespeople, you actually have to have your marketing story. You have to have your marketing story in. Uh, you have to have your marketing story in order. So I think so many startups that they go out and they hire the big hitting salesperson before they've actually uh, figured out, um, uh, yeah, figured out exactly what it is they're selling and how to sell it. So I let to weigh in before Scott does on that one. But, but yeah, in reality, if you ask me to quip what's the hardest job at a startup, it's first VP of sales uh, for precisely the reasons you lay out. They're often hired prematurely. They're often just said, go off and sell something, and they're left on their own. Uh, there's a lot that goes wrong. I think the second hardest job is VP of product with a product founder, but but I thought Scott gave a great answer to that, uh, that, that founders listen to. I think they can make that job uh, a lot easier and make the companies more successful. Scott, did you have any thoughts on that before we go to our next question? No, I, I think the right answer there is, and I think, Dave, Dave you um, uh, touched on this, is the only way that I've ever seen to make your first VP of sales successful is to over-invest your time as a founder with them. Because, again, it's, it's a lonely job, especially when you're, when you're the first one. 
uh, you're, you know, being a great closer uh, implies that you have everything else that you need in order to get that to that moment of close. That includes materials. It includes uh, tribal knowledge. It includes, um, you know, customer uh, interactions and references that, that you can speak to. All the things that founders will have, because that's naturally what we have to do when we're getting our company going. And the first VP of sales is gonna, not going to have any of that. And by the way, most most early stage companies, they don't have anything documented. Why? Because you're moving a gazillion miles an hour. And yeah, you don't you're not sleeping much. And the last thing you're thinking about is documentation. So I think binding yourself to that person and over investing your time, which will seem like uh, a real distraction as a founder, founding CEO from from building your business is the only is the best and only path forward, I believe. Awesome. Awesome. Great advice. Um, next question, another slight curveball. We're, we're going to talk about roadmaps, and, and I'll just tell you my pet peeve, and I'd love to hear your comment on it, but there, there seems to be this natural gravitational state for product management to become the roadmap people. Oh, we need roadmap pips. Bring in the PMs. And, and you kind of end up just like the roadmap pitch person. <laughs> and, and I'd love if you've seen that and your thoughts on that, because look, a lot of being a PM is the roadmap. But 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 we have to be careful, in my opinion, that the job doesn't turn into traveling road show for the road map. And, and I'm curious if you've seen that as an occupational hazard or not, and just your thoughts on that before we get into. How to- yeah, it, it, this is <laughs> this is a this is an interesting subject because different companies view product roadmaps differently. Um, I have obviously my own uh, view on this, and I'll share it. Um, my my view is that. While product managers, especially in large companies, are largely looked upon as the creator of the roadmap and the communicator of the roadmap, you know, um, even, even the most senior product leaders will still have to answer to the CEO. And sometimes, even in the largest companies, companies that you and I have worked for, Dave, uh, they you, 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 you more or less stamp out what you think is the gold copy of the the roadmap and then you present it to you know the ceo or co-founders whoever and uh things get derailed because there's a new priority that you weren't aware of there's a maybe we're going to acquire a company and that's going to change your roadmap you didn't know about that but hey by the way we're acquiring this company um so so i'd say that's that for for later stage companies that can be that that can be the dynamic Early stage companies, which is really the topic today, I think that the roadmap has to be more of a collaborative exercise. Now, I believe in accountability and I believe in ownership. So at the end of the day, someone has to own it, that, that uh, document and, and that vision. And I do think that that should be the, the product leader for either that particular product or the higher level product leader for the entire product line. But Early stage companies, we're talking about companies that are maybe 50, maybe 100 people big, uh, their marketing is going to be speaking with customers on a daily basis. Sales going to be t- speaking with customers on a daily basis. And while, you know, the, the old Henry Ford, um, uh, almost cliche quote at this point, uh, applies here uh, around, you know, building a faster uh, horse carriage uh, versus the car, I think that early stage companies never have enough information. They never have enough input. And 
aside from those who are too narcissistic to believe that there are things they don't understand about the market and their and their potential customers, I would say that just about everyone in the company who has any interaction with the outside world, that is potential customers, potential partners, uh, any other stakeholders that would make a difference, should be an input to that roadmap. So it needs to be a highest level. This is almost like a uh, CEO's um, staff meeting level exercise in the earliest days. That, that's how I view it. So uh, a couple things that, that I want that you triggered in my mind of thoughts. So one, I, I have a saying, which is market vision and sell product. And, and the roadmap is neither, <laughs> right? It, it's right in between. Um, so I want to be marketing. Hey, this is where we're going. I want to sell you what I have on the truck today. And, and the roadmap is right in between those two things. And, and I think people can get too dependent on the roadmap. Um, second, I totally agree with your point. The occupational hazard I pointed out is a large company problem, more than a small company problem. But but at big companies, in my opinion, the PMs literally become the traveling roadmap roadshow. And that I really don't like for the reason you touched on, which is if you're delivering roadmap presentations all day, what are you not doing? Listening, <laughs> right? So, so I try to, the companies I've worked at, I try to change salespeople's behavior from, oh, we need to bring Scott in to tell you about the roadmap to we need to bring Scott in to listen to you about how you use the product. I don't want you to just say like Scott is a one, you know, is a restaurant with one item on the menu called roadmap presentation. <laughs> I, I want to put another item on the menu called like listening session. Um, and, and that's, that's how I try to reframe it because uh, that's the job in my mind. I think that's important. And, and I, I guess I, I could have been more explicit because you're right. It's a, it has to be a discovery session, just the same way that you send in your SE and your uh, AEs into a first meeting to do a discovery we're doing the same thing uh, on the product side. And if, if we're not assuming that we're wrong on some things all the time, then we are just giving a presentation. I mean, it's like, hey, you know, sit down for uh, you know, your favorite movie. You really wish the ending hadn't been so lousy, but there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, in this case, there is. So yep. one of the things, uh, Scott, maybe a question for you here. Do you differentiate in your mind between prospects and customers when you think as a, as a product manager? I do in the sense that if they're, if they're customers and they've been using working with your product for some time, they're going to have a more fine-grained viewpoint on certain things. What I tend to hear from uh, existing customers is, hey, we've been using this feature or this capability. Boy, I wish it worked this other way. Or boy, I wish uh, the analytics were able to reveal this data. Prospects aren't going to be able to tell you those sorts of things. And so your, your roadmap is both a high-level vision, like here are the big blocks of where we think we're going, you know, over the next 18 to 36 months. And then there's also going to be, once you sort of, you know, zoom in to what's inside the box, it's going to be features and capability, features and functions. And so what you're going to get from your existing customers is a lot of the features functions. You might get a little bit of the high-level stuff like, hey, why don't you guys, uh, hey, you're, you know, you're, 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 you know you're, you're building a, great, uh, you know, tele uh, telematics uh, product right now. Why don't you build autonomous cars? Uh, well, that's interesting. Um, but I think the um, prospects are going to give you higher level guidance to say, yeah, this seems valuable, but it could be a lot more valuable if you added this higher level, higher order capability. And I, so I think that's, there's, there's a bit of a dividing line there. Not, not hard and fast, but I, I do see a difference there. 
So uh, taking us back to the roadmap, um, how to accelerate. Every every company wants to accelerate their roadmap. I, I know it's a topic you wanted to talk about. Uh, how, how do you do it? Well, I think that is one of the holy grail answers. If you can, If any company can figure out a secret formula for pushing a button and just suddenly getting all every team to increase their velocity. I think, I think, well, first of all, if that became a product ever, I think it would be one of the most valuable companies in the world. Um, I'm not sure that exists. I'm not sure that's so. So what I actually uh, we look at um, across our companies at Norwest and and certainly in, in previous companies where, where I've actually held product roles. Um, you Part, uh, you, you got to go down to the atomic unit. I, I don't think this is a macro problem. I think it's a micro problem. And so if you're an agile house or any sort of derivation of agile, chances are you have teams, teams of, 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 of people, including engineers, including uh, uh, product people, product owners or product managers. You've got technical writers in there. You've got UX people in there. And those teams are generally organized in a certain way. And one of the things that I really try to help a lot of companies um, with these days is thinking about breaking whatever organization they've got and, you know, kind of throwing all 52 cards up and reshuffling the deck and figuring out what is a better way. Because I I found that (laughs) so often, you know, teams, uh, engineers will have a low velocity of, of output because either they're not that interested in what they're building or they don't have enough background or interest. So they're learning on the job, which is not a bad thing. It's just, it's just a, a fact of life. It decreases velocity. And same thing with product, uh, product owners. You know, you're the one who's uh, creating the user stories. Well, shoot, you know, maybe you just, maybe you're building a platform product and you just don't understand you know, how the data structure works. Maybe you don't know what a data lake really does, but yet you're writing user stories against it. Well, that's going to slow you down a lot, and engineering is going to be constantly asking you, Scott, where is, uh, we're, we got this next sprint coming up. Where, where are the requirements? And you say, well, here they are. And they say, well, those are too, those are too high order. We, we need more details. And so all of these things, these microatomic units, slow things down. So I always encourage companies to say, are we are our teams and the people on those teams in the right place? And they always push back and they say, "Well, Scott, if we uh, you know if we blow that up, you know that's just going to slow us down even more." And I said, "Well, yeah, it it it, it might, uh, but you know it's the it's the short term pain for the long term gain." And so more often than not, once we go through that exercise and we actually ask people, you know, engineers, uh, all kinds of different personality types, but some personalities in engineering are there they don't want to necessarily uh, you know be boisterous and say hey you know i really don't want to be doing this anymore i'd rather be doing something else they'll kind of hunker down and and just kind of take take uh the, the work as it is and i i think we need to get closer to those people i think we need to create a a better culture around hey let's express what are we really interested in what are we really great at where do we want to spend time and if it's if it's going to be learning on the job great but let's call it what it is so that when we're trying to accelerate the roadmap, we're trying to put, produce more product in a short amount of time, we've already carved out, okay, these two people are going to be learning. And we're not going to count them. They've already signed up for so many story points. We're just going to wipe those out. And that's okay because it's going to pay dividends down the road in, in future sprints. So that's, that's kind of the – I could go on, but I, I think that's, that's generally the philosophy 
that I would use to, to try to accelerate things. Awesome. So, um, you, you, you touched on process in that answer. And, and I do want to ask your question one, one level down just on, on scrum process in specific. When I was at Salesforce with you, uh, and John, I can see you there. Hi, John. Um, I thought we had an amazingly good scrum process. And I'm curious how you felt about that. And, and, and do you recommend, like, what books do you recommend? And if startups say, hey, what process should I follow for, for kind of driving the product organization? What do you say? What books? What advice? What did you think about how it ran at Salesforce, et cetera? Salesforce, um, like a lot of companies, especially companies at scale, they started with a um, – a process that you can read out of a book. Uh, we started with actually way back when um, paired programming, extreme programming, whatever, uh, evolved into agile. And then it evolved into something else. And most companies that I work with um, and that I, that I see, they have, they'll always say, nobody said, whenever you say, hey, are you an agile shop? 98% of the time you're going to get, well, we have a version of agile. Right. And that's that's fine. I think that's I think that's the right answer. And it probably it should be the right answer. Um, at Salesforce, we called it ADM and it was uh, adaptive development methodology is what the what the acronym stood for. And essentially what it meant was we were going to play by some of the agile rules by the by the book and other things we were going to handle in a way that made more sense for our engineering organization. One of the unique things about Salesforce is that uh, we released software three times a year, um, and we've continues to do that. And then in between, there were all kinds of, uh, you know, sort of sub-releases that were either patches or, you know, fixes along the way. And so our methodology and the way we organize teams had to be finely tuned to that cadence. And so some companies, for a while there, um, you know, Brett uh, Schooneman, who's on this uh, listening in right now, uh, and, and, and John as well. We worked on a, a brand called Desk, Desk.com. Um, we, it was the uh, acquisition of Assistly that, that we rebranded, but it was an organization that was used to releasing software on a daily basis. Sometimes I think our peak was tw when we did 20 releases in one day. And the only way you can do that is to restructure around a DevOps methodol uh, mentality and philosophy that engineering and product we all have to we all have to buy into that, and so the structure of the desk.com organization in their agile environment was actually different than that of the core Salesforce teams, and appropriately so. Awesome. Um, another concept you touched on uh, was story points. But by, by the way, we're talking with Scott Beechuk, a uh, partner at Norwest Ventures, former Salesforce executive, former entrepreneur, and in another life, musician that we'll eventually ask about. Um, and we are recording the room uh, to distribute as a podcast later. We are also open to questions. So if anybody feels so inclined, uh, press the raise your hand button down below uh, and we'll pull you up on stage. Um, Scott, you talked about story points. I know it wasn't central. You mentioned it kind of in passing, but, but one of my pet peeves is people who try to measure engineering productivity with story points. So I'd love to get it. Just what are your views on story points? How should they used? How should they not be used, uh, et cetera? Well, first of all, um, I'm not a fan of story points at all because story points lead to something else that I think is uh, fairly um, dangerous, uh, which is uh, burn down charts. 
Um, I know that, uh, you know, uh, John Agnano, Brett Schuneman on this call, and I have had uh, quite a history of, you know, dealing with um, this culture of focusing on burndown charts, which luckily we turned the corner on. Because what happens with story points is, A, a story point is not a measure of the time it takes to complete a task. Uh, it, it's a measure of the level of difficulty, which is abstract. It's very abstract. And so what we try to do, and again, this, is, this gets very philosophical, which I think is very contrary to engineering and actually building tangible product. What we're trying to do with story points or what they, what they invented them for was to try to say, okay, well, how much work can we produce in a certain amount of time? But, of course, that, is, that contradicts the nature of story points, which are not supposed to be tied to time. They're supposed to be tied to complexity. So in, in a perfect world for me, I, I wouldn't use story points. Um, I would, I would <laughs> in fact, there are a lot of different ways that I've seen companies uh, completely move away from story points because at the end of the day, especially with early, early stage companies, all eyes are on everyone. You can't hide in the corner. There's no, you know, uh, team of a thousand where you can kind of get buried and, and deliver nothing. Everybody must deliver. And so, I think in, in teams of 50 to 70 to 80 engineers and product people, everyone knows who's delivering. We can look at how much code you're checking in. We can look at if you're doing um, some sort of evaluation work, you're doing spiking or whatever it is, that's fine. Document it. Publish it. Let, us, let everyone know. The daily stand-ups help us understand where we are and who's doing what. But uh, story points themselves are, can be fairly dangerous. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> it just drives me crazy because I've seen them as an output metric I mean at least as a t-shirt sizing like how much work is this how hard is this I think it's okay but 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 to, to step over that line and, and start saying this person is more productive because I mean to me among other things it just introduces much game theory into the equation right um, so yeah the, love the, the, the brand on burn down charts and start points that was awesome um, the uh, Next topic. Look, we got a question. Scott, we got a question. Every company I'm working with right now, hiring, 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 hiring really hard. Market's too hot. Can't find engineers. Can't find PMs. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how people can address hiring in, in, in what I think is a very challenging hiring market. Wow. Well, I this this could be another hour long uh, session, and I, I'm sure we could find somebody who's, um, you know, who spends their entire uh, career uh, thinking about this. Um, my, my view on, on this is that we are in a challenging time, of course. But you know what? Uh, hiring is never easy because you always want to find the best people. And the best people aren't always the best culture fit either. So just because and, – and you know, there's also this theory around how many A players do you want on a single team? Well, some, some would argue we're going to hire one A player and then we're going to have a bunch of Bs in there. I'm not sure I'm a, a huge fan of that. I think I tend to my I, 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 people who know me have heard me say this for probably decades, which is A players tend to hire A players, which is great. And accidentally, every once in a while, they'll hire a B player. And then what happens is that B player will hire mostly B players and accidentally hire a C player. And next thing you know, you can see the you know sort of the the cellular game of life expanding here within a company. All of a sudden, you've got a company full of D's and E's and F's, and nobody wants that. And so I, I think a focus on quality is incredibly important. Now, in, in the environment, the market that we're in right now, that is just remarkably challenging. But we do still have companies uh, within you know, the Norwest portfolio that I'm close to 
who are having a tremendous amount of success. I happen to think that that the brand of a company and the excitement around the company sometimes trumps things even like comp. Now, it's not going to be the difference between paying 100 and 200 k a year, but I think that I've seen a lot of very talented engineers, product people, marketing people join companies that were not the highest bid, were not the highest offer that they received, simply because there is a lot of excitement around what you're doing. And this gets back to your specialty, uh, uh, Dave, which is how do you uh, do all those 10 things that a CMO has to do, particularly focused on brand and, you know, um, uh, you know, getting out there uh, from a demand gen standpoint and, you know, doing all the, doing these types of things, right? How do we, you know, it, it, companies should be on Clubhouse. They should be doing podcasts. They should be, you know, on the, uh, you know, they should be on all of the um, technical forums. And the more that, that your, your, your company and your brand gets out there, the more likely someone is to even take the first interview and then, well, darn it, <laughs> you better be a good company and you better have great people interviewing. And, you know, one of the things that uh, that we use at Norwest across the portfolio is is a, a product for engineers called Carrot, K-A-R-A-T. And that tool really, really helps figure out who are those A players, because it's really hard to in a, in a short one hour interview. Uh, to figure out, you know, who's going to knock it out of the park from an architecture or a, or a code standpoint. Uh, but there's that's that that's really the the best short answer I can give you. Awesome, thanks, Scott. Hey, Vitaly, another Salesforce alum uh, on stage here. Vitaly, uh, I think you have a question or comment for us. We'd love to hear it. Hey, folks, Dave and Scott, um, love the conversation so far. So thanks for having it. And Dave, I think, uh, you know, you should issue trigger warnings before talking about story points because, like, my blood pressure went up. Uh, so, <laughs> Scott, I, com- I completely agree with your um, assessment of that it might lead to, you know, let's say somewhat uh, toxic behavior. But I, I actually have not necessarily... Um, a product management related question, but Scott, maybe let you flex your you know product marketing skills uh, a little bit. And and a question that I'm interested in as kind of a founder of an early early stage startup, there is an you know in, innovation in the uh, venture capital space like we probably never seen before. I at least haven't seen a, a, anything from kind of you know SPACs uh, at the late stage to like rolling funds at the early stage. And my question to you as a, as a partner in, in, let's say, a more traditional and definitely one of the first kind of venture, a, a classic venture capital firm, like where do you see uh, the role that now uh, a traditional venture capital firm plays in, in an era where there are just so many options? Hey, Vitaly, how are you doing? <laughs> Great to reconnect. <laughs> Great. <here. laughs> um, and, and I like the question um, because I think what you're what you're really getting at here is the options for liquidity now are so expanded and so uh, we're, we're frothy right now where it seems like just about any company at any stage might be able to find a path to liquidity. And it, that in and of itself is it, it raises a red flag. Um, just making that statement alone. I think, you know, we've seen some very positive uh, results of SPACs. For instance, uh, one of our companies, Open Door, um, they used the, the SPAC as a vehicle and it was very, very successful. But I have to say, a SPAC is really no different from a traditional IPO uh, 
except that you know the mechanics are a little bit different. It, it, it sometimes can happen a little bit faster. But the result is that you are a publicly traded company on the other side of that. And guess what happens when you're publicly traded? All eyes are on you. You have to give quarterly uh, updates and, and you have to report to the street. And all of a sudden, all those metrics that you're kind of soft on, maybe, maybe we didn't, maybe reporting on those metrics, maybe we weren't caring as much about those because we were in high growth mode. Suddenly those matter a lot because the street is the truth, meaning <laughs> you can't control the public. The public will value your company once it's public as, as it should be. Or in, in in most cases, okay. There's some there's some outliers out there, thanks to Reddit. But um, I think that we as as venture capitalists and and investors and partners and board members, our job is to try to provide the best guidance to our, our companies and to say yes, there are a tremendous number of ways that you can now obtain liquidity. But what are we trying to optimize for? We're trying to optimize for the greatest value for the stakeholders who matter the most. And that is, A, your customers, they matter the most because without your customers, I don't care how you exit, your company is, is based on, the success of your company is based on your customers and how, how healthy and successful they are. And then number two, what about everyone else who has any sort of interest in your company whatsoever, meaning shareholders? Well, okay, those are employees. Okay, and those are also in early angel investors, and those are advisors, and those are investors like like VCs. Those people matter a lot because they're the ones who believed in you, backed you, and gave you everything they had, especially on the advising side and on the and on the board side, and, and the employees number one on that list. They gave you everything they had. They deserve to have the best long term outcome possible. And so chasing after the fast-moving shiny ball, which may be a SPAC, it might be something else, uh, might be an M&A opportunity that, you know, into a company that isn't near a great match for you and the combined entity might not be as successful as it should be. Those are the types of things we need to advise cautiously about. So hopefully that uh, gets to your question. Yeah, thank you. That's a great answer. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Vitaly. Um, Scott, we've got five minutes left here. Um, again, if anybody else has a question, feel free to come up. I, I'll meantime ask you one more, which is just, I, I know in a prior life you were a musician. I, I do work with some founders who are also musicians and often make parallels between music and software. I'd love to hear what, what lessons you took from your prior life into this one. <laughs> well, thanks, Dave. Um, <laughs> this is a, this is, this is, this is a lot to unpack and it's a, it's a bit of a Pandora's box, but I'll say this. I spent um, about 20 years uh, as a professional musician in the music industry alongside my tech career, and it was it was always a small part of the number of hours of my life that I would dedicate. However, I learned a lot about the music industry, and well, I think for some people, they will thrive there. Um, other people, in fact, majority of them will find it uh, to be very difficult. I it's it's a it's it's a brutal industry. I think it's one where there's uh if there if you could see the Venn diagram I'm drawing right now, there's a huge bubble, a huge circle of great super talented musicians. I don't throw myself in that category by the way. I'm talking about, you know, the bands that you would actually go to see that can attract, you know, a thousand people, okay? And then there's this tiny little bubble off to the side that's all the money that's available for all musicians in the entire planet. And that's the problem. 
is it's so stratified that you have so much talent out there that you just it's very very hard to make a career in music. So I would I would encourage every musician out there if you absolutely love it and it is the number one thing and you just and you are willing to spend you know 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, the Verve Pipe coming out of Michigan where I grew up, they spent almost 20 years just battling out in these small clubs until finally they got signed uh, to BMI, I believe. Uh, and then they had, you know, now their career exploded, but it took 20 years and that's, it's, it's brutal. The, the touring is not as glorious as it seems, uh, you know, trying to make ends meet and trying to find the marketing to, to build things. I personally, my, my, my own story was that I was, you know, I really enjoyed, uh, producing a lot of music. Um, we did work for Oliver Stone on his looking for Fidel movie on HBO. We did TVs and commercial stuff for ESPN and Walt Disney. Um, I got to work with some incredible people. Tony Lindsay, who was the lead singer for um, Santana for 14 years. Uh, we, we produced a, a, an original record together. So meeting people, it's, it's, it, there's a huge allure there. And by the way, here's, here's the last thing I'll say. I learned that you don't have to be the best musician on the block in order to to do some interesting things and tour and, and and meet great people, you just have to have a little bit of combination of some musical talent combined with some business talent. And I think that if you don't have those two things going for you, it's it's going to be it's going to be a rough go. And uh, definitely want to sort of temper my success by saying it wasn't that successful, <laughs> but we had a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, to me, some takeaways from there. I mean, one, the, you know, the overnight success thing, like, like it's not always the case and often not the case in music and in software. UiPath is the hot company du jour, having gone public, I guess, yesterday or so. But but that was a long grind. And I think it was only about six years ago they went out and tried to raise a round and failed, right? So, uh, and they'd been in business quite a bit before then. So, um, the, definitely some of the persistence stuff comes together. And I think the other thing, you know, it's it's... I always say in law firms, it's not the best lawyer who becomes the, the managing partner. It, it's the one who's got that mix of law and business. Uh, it's not the best salesperson who becomes a great sales manager. It's the one who has the, the mix. And sounds like you're saying something similar, uh, really, when it comes to music. Uh, so we're at time here. Thomas, did you have any uh, final question or any final yeah, Well, there was, there was a final up? question Rush, from... Uh, Thomas first, then Scott, then I'll wrap it up. So there was a final question from the, from the audience. Chris, do you want to quickly uh, have a say? Chris Dancy, you had a quick question. I hope it's quick. Maybe he's gone. No. Uh, Chris Dancy, one of my favorite people. Glad to see him here. Sorry, Chris, I didn't see you had a question. My bad. I, I think I'm phase lag. So, Thomas, feel free to interrupt me if that happens again. Yeah, let me oh, give – uh, he should have the microphone now. Chris, are you are you there? <clears throat> Thanks. I didn't – I tried to ask, but I was still in uh, audience mode. So I was, um, like most of my life, speaking to no one. Um <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the talk a lot. I've known uh, Scott for a while, and I don't. I, to be honest with you, this is the only time I get to talk to him. To, to uh, but that's a that's a slight job. Scott, the question you had so much wisdom about all this, and then you look at your history between the music and everything else. How important is it for startups or any companies to seriously address the culture of trauma and just toxicity that it, that it, that just is everywhere today? We talked a lot about measurements and getting stuff to to market and the right people, but like, what do what do you suggest people do to make sure they just don't kill themselves? Hmm. Well, 
Great question, Chris. There's a lot to unpack there. Toxicity can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But, you know, if I just if I focus generally on, on, on culture and, you know, uh, how people behave with one another uh, within a company, it, it is one of the primary reasons why organizations fail. And it comes down to I think I, I always find that the root of many, many problems uh, come down to ego. And so much ego, so much narcissism can really, really hurt a company. Early stages, mid stages, late stages, it doesn't really matter. And so one of the, one of the lessons learned here has been if, and I think we're, we're, hopefully we're learning this as time goes on, but if you see something happening, something toxic, some, uh, in, in, um, it could be anything from you know, something that might be considered harassment. It could be something that's just an imbalance or a, sort of a, a narcissistic view on how to make decisions where other, you know, others aren't being heard. Um, you know, I think one of the roles and responsibilities we have in, in this day and age is to pay more attention to people, pay attention, ask questions, be caring, be, um, you know, be appropriate, but be, you know, care about the people that you work with. And I mean that in a professional way. I mean that in, it's it's not that hard to get out of your bubble for a second and just be aware of what's happening around you. And I think we've, we've we're coming out of an era where we didn't do that a lot. It was a heads down, you know, just cutthroat, do anything possible to succeed. And I think now we're entering an era where there needs to be a lot more empathy. And that is, to me, that, again, at the highest level, because we don't have too much time, is the number one thing that I think needs to happen more in order to create more healthy uh, and productive organizations. Superb. So, n- nothing better to end on than that. So, Chris, thanks so much for your question. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for your answer. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks, people, for staying over. We'll try to end on time. or a little, minute or two late. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks again, Scott. Have a good day, everybody. Thanks all. Thank you Thank very you much. So much. Talk soon. Thank you. See you next week.